John chapter 15, beginning in verse 18, almost to the end, verse 25. Before we read it and get into the study tonight, we always like to welcome listeners from around the United States who tune in live on this Saturday night broadcast from coast to coast. Would you give them a warm welcome? Look at verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his Lord or his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. Now there's a strong word, hate. Hatred is responsible for so much evil, so much wickedness, so many wars, so much oppression, lawsuits, divorce, terrorism. Hatred is part of us. It's part of humanity. It's part of the the old man, the fallen nature. It starts when we're young and, if unchecked, carries through life. It emerges whenever we don't get what we want. That's basically how it works. A mom took her two kids shopping. A five-year-old and a three-year-old. They got into a tiff, pretty common. Anger started seething, words started flying. I hate you, said one. I hate you too, said the other. Then mom, of course, stepped in and said, Now that's not nice. I'm certainly not going to take two boys who hate each other to lunch at McDonald's. And the five-year-old quickly backed down. I don't really hate you, Billy. But Billy, with the clear logic of a three-year-old said, well, I'm not hungry, so I still hate you. <laughs> and though there, there are times when hatred isn't, isn't all that funny. It's not funny when people grow up, but don't really grow up. Mike Tyson, after prison time for rape, said this, quote, I hate everybody. I know they say you can't hate the world and don't be bitter, but I just hate everybody, close quote. Now sometimes hatred is just plain stupid. It's lame. It's really of no value, but it does, it does make an impact. For instance, 
From one source that I read, the reason that the English people drive on the left side instead of the right side is because of hatred. Isn't that interesting? You say, how did that come about? Well, as the story goes, the Pope once visited Paris, France. And up to that point, they had really no traffic laws governing the flow of traffic. And so so that the Pope could go through the streets, all of the Parisians were commanded to drive on the right side of the road, both courses of traffic, so that the Pope could go freely on the left side in his carriage. After he left, Napoleon decided to make that the precedent, that the rule of law, that forward traffic is on the right side. The British, it is said, so hated the French at that time that they decided to reverse the custom. That's why they drive on the left side. Now, in our text, the section spotlights a specific kind of hatred, the hatred the world has for the Christian. And there is an obvious change from the previous paragraph of last week. We move from privilege to pain. We move to the dark side of being a friend of Jesus or a servant of His. Did you know that one of the complaints some have against evangelical Christians is that we're not always honest about the disadvantages of following the Lord, at least from the human perspective? We love to tell people all the advantages if you come to Christ, but we're shy on telling them the disadvantages, the dark side, as we mentioned. Now, Jesus does both. He's candid. He's honest. He gives them the pros. He calls them friends. He says, I'm the one who selected you as my friends. And as a friend, I'll tell you everything. I've told you how to get to heaven, how to live on earth till you get to heaven. I've told you about the future of the earth all the way to the end times. I've, I've spilled everything because you're my friends. And he told them that that friendship was so important that he would pay the ultimate price his own life. But he is just as honest in telling us what the repercussions of that friendship are. And that's what these verses are all about. That friendship comes with a fee, you might say. That camaraderie has a consequence. It is hatred and persecution. In other words, Jesus' enemies aren't going to like Jesus' friends. That's what it boils down to. Jesus' enemies aren't going to like Jesus' friends. I have shared this with you some time back. It is a news article called Not in My Backyard. It was in a major publication. And it says the percentage of Americans who would not like the following minorities as neighbors. 1% say they don't want Catholics living next door to them. 2% say they don't want Protestants living next door to them. 3% say they don't want Jewish people living next door. 9% say they don't want Hispanics living next door. 12% don't want unmarried couples living next door. 13% don't want blacks. But the largest group, a little over 13%, say they don't want religious fundamentalists living next door to them. Keep in mind, this was done way before 9-11 when that term took on different meaning. Not in my backyard, the article is called. Let's begin with the obvious tonight. We're going to go from the obvious to the not so obvious. We're going to go from the bad news to the better news. 
And the bad news is, the frank news is the world's indignation. That's how Jesus begins. The world's indignation. He says in verse 18 that the world is going to hate us. He says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Now, I want you to just notice a contrast. Back in verse 9, love is mentioned. In fact, it's mentioned three times. Then go to the next verse, verse 10, love is mentioned two more times. Verse 12, love is mentioned twice more. Verse 13, love is mentioned once. And verse 17, it is mentioned once. All total, love is mentioned nine times. The love of God, the love of Christ, the love of Christians, one for another. Now there is a sharp contrast in the next breath, in the next paragraph, hatred is used a total of six times. Why? Simply put, the love of Christ brings the world's hatred. 1 John chapter 3, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, therefore, the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. Now, what does Jesus mean by the term world? Some of you know it's the term in Greek, cosmos. We get cosmic, cosmopolitan. It doesn't mean the sphere of the planet itself. It doesn't mean the atmosphere, the biosphere, all the animals are against me. The word cosmos means an arranged order of things. An arranged order of things. An ordered system. A system that includes activities, ideas, and people. So we talk about the wide world of sports. We're not speaking of another planet somewhere out there. We simply speak of ideas, activities, and people that are involved in sports. That's the world, the cosmos of sports. Well, in the Bible, Satan is called the God of this world who has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. The Bible uses the term to refer to an ordered system of activities, ideas, and people ruled by Satan. Now, it's tricky because much of this system is refined, intellectual, and even religious. But at its heart, it is against God, it is against Christ, and it's not too crazy about you. And you sometimes feel that. You sometimes feel sort of like the missionary on the foreign field who went where cannibals lived. And there was one of them one day he met in the jungle staring at him, looking at him from head to foot. The missionary got nervous and said, Why are you staring at me? The cannibal said, I'm just the food inspector. (laughs) Sometimes we get the idea that we are being scrutinized carefully, looked over from head to toe as a believer. And that's because you are. Then look at verse 20. The world not only will hate you, but in its hatred will persecute you. Verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. They remember Jesus had said that on occasions before. And so he brings up previous conversations. In fact, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, Jesus said in verse 22, Brother will deliver brother up to death, 
and a father his child, and children will rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. I'll never forget standing with my wife and my son and a couple of our friends in the Roman Colosseum a few years back. It's in ruins, but there's enough there to imagine the scene of our Christian brothers and sisters years ago being fed to the lions, being slaughtered for the amusement of the crowds. And thinking of all of the persecution during the the first especially to the fourth centuries in Rome. Stories that I read like Caesar Nero taking believers, Christians, and tying them up to posts, dipping them, swathing them in hot tar and using them as torches to light his gardens at night. Another torture he was fond of was taking the skins of wild animals after gutting the animals so the blood scent was fresh and and putting people inside of them and sewing them up so they couldn't get out and letting wild dogs eat the whole carcass and the believer inside alive. Or pouring molten lead onto them affixing hot brass plates to the tenderest parts of their body. If you've never read Fox's Book of Martyrs, I recommend it to you. It will at least just keep fresh in your mind what our forefathers went through for centuries. One section of that book, John Fox speaks about just the the apostles that were there that night when Jesus said they're going to be persecuted. You want to know how it came true? Here's their story. Matthew was slain with a sword while preaching in Ethiopia. Mark, who wrote the Gospel, was drugged through the streets of Alexandria, Egypt. Luke was hung upon an olive tree in Greece. John was put into boiling oil, as the story goes, and he didn't die. was unaffected, in fact, and so he was banished to Patmos. Peter was crucified upside down on a cross outside of Rome. James the Greater beheaded at Jerusalem. James the Less thrown down from the temple and then beaten to death with a club. Bartholomew flayed alive. Andrew bound to a cross where he preached to his persecutors until he died. Thomas run through with a lance in East India. And Jude shot to death with arrows. These 11 men this night as Jesus was walking with them, had no clue what was coming up and really didn't understand these words, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be hated. They didn't quite get it. In fact, they're still reeling from the prediction that He Himself is going to the cross. They still haven't got that handled. And He's laying this on them. And it did happen. And so we're prone to think in hearing these stories quoted, well, that happened so long ago, that stuff doesn't happen anymore. People don't like us, but there's no persecution in modern times. Since 1950, it is estimated that 10 million brothers and sisters have been martyred. Last year, 160,000 of our brothers and sisters on earth were martyred. Kent Hill, the director of the Institute on Religion and Democracy in Washington, D.C., said, There have been more martyrs produced in the 20th century than in all other centuries combined since the time of Christ. So there's the world's indignation. They're going to hate you. They're going to persecute you. Now we move into why Jesus gives them an explanation. 
He explains the world's indignation, but now here's the Savior's explanation. Look at verse 18 once again. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now look down at verse 23. He who hates me hates my father also. Basically, two reasons why the world hates true believers. Number one is because the world hates God, especially God and Christ. Now why do they hate God? Why does the system, the cosmos of of activities and value systems and ideas, why would the world hate God? Well, basically, simply, it's a spiritual issue. The God of this world, Satan, the God of this system, hates the creator of this world, God, and the redeemer of this world, Jesus, because it spells his defeat. And so Satan uses his children, so to speak, unbelievers, to get at you believers, really to get at God. You're really not the issue. Don't flatter yourself. You're really of no consequence to the demons nor to Satan himself. But only as you relate to God because you're part of God's work on the earth of redemption. So because you interface with God and because Satan hates God, you and I happen to be caught in the crossfire. Notice in verse 22, Jesus says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. And again, verse 24, If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. See, before Jesus Christ came, people could get by with a relative goodness, a self-righteousness, a comparative righteousness. But then Jesus came. And His truth, His words, were so unmistakably clear in the Gospel, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Nobody's going to get those words mixed up. And His works were so perfect, that is, He lived the perfect life that we could, could never live, that such a different speech and such a different life showed the world up showed the world up big time. And by his life and by his words, he exposed their sin. Years ago, a man from China visited the United States of America. This is in the days when the microscope was just starting to get used widely in medical practice in America. In China, it was far behind. This man had never seen a microscope. He was fascinated that you could look with detail at flowers and leaves and tiny little things became so large you could see a whole different kind of life. He was so amused by it, he decided to buy one and bring it home to China, which he did. And he enjoyed using this thing, showing his friends. And he loved this thing so much until one evening he decided to look at his food under a microscope. So he took a little bit of rice and smushed it down and put it on the plate and took it under the microscope and looked at it carefully and was shocked to see all these tiny little bugs crawling around, microscopic life living on that. And it so shocked him, it so bothered him, it so repulsed him that he was debating in his mind what to do and the only way out was to break the microscope. 
And so he did. He took it out and he smashed it because the microscope revealed the problem. That's what the world does because Christ's words are so pure and his life so perfect and he shows and exposes sin. It's like, let's get rid of it. You know what it's like when you're in a dark room and your eyes are accustomed to the darkness. Maybe you're just falling asleep and somebody turns on the light, your wife or your mother. Time to get up, it's morning. And you go, ah. You have grown to love the darkness because your eyes are accustomed to it. Of course, the Bible says men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So let's get rid of the light. You've noticed this. Notice how people mention and speak about Jesus Christ. You know, you can mention Jesus Christ reverentially. People will get upset. But they'll use the name of Jesus Christ in their curse language. And yet, you, you never hear of somebody saying, Oh, Buddha! <laughs> or Muhammad H. Prophet. <laughs> never hear that. But you hear Jesus Christ name maligned, railed upon. And I have a hunch it's for this reason. Because the light exposes the darkness. Look now also at verse 19. There's a second reason it goes with it. It's not only because the world hates God, that's part of the world system under Satan, but those who are related to God and chosen out of the world. If you were of the world, now you're not of the world, you're in the world, but you're not of it. You don't belong to the system. You don't share its values. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You by your lifestyle, you because of the difference that you possess and show, different ideas, values, different activities, different pleasures, by that kind of a life that shows that you're not of the same kind of persuasion, you by your life turn the light on. Ouch, the world responds. You're different. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, all those who live godly will suffer what? Persecution. All those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now why is that? Well, simply because the world will misinterpret your godliness as superiority. Who do you think you are? You think you're better than me? I see you toting that Bible around and whispering a prayer every now and then. Who do you think you are? You're different than they are. And they misinterpret that as a superiority complex. It makes them feel bad. I read a news article this week. A North Carolina church, they did this every year until they were shut down by the city. Every year on their property, they put three crosses out before Easter at the Lenten season, draped in black cloths. And then they would put white on them at Easter. Well, the Myrtle Beach Chamber of Commerce gave them a call and said, you know, you've got to take these crosses down. People are starting to complain. Now, put them inside the church, nobody cares. But outside the church, we find them offensive. Very telling. The crosses turn on the light that reveal the goodness of Christ and the sin of the world. And so let's get rid of the light. Here's a little axiom you can put in your mind, a little saying. You can remember this. 
great persecution is the result of the great commission. Great persecution is the result of the great commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every living creature. That's the great commission. If you do that, if you live godly lives, if you turn on the light, hell is not going to give you a standing ovation. Nor will all of the children of the devil appreciate you. You'll be persecuted. You might want to plant this in your memory along with great persecution is the result of the Great Commission. If you live out Acts chapter 1 verse 8, you can expect in your life Acts chapter 8 verse 1. 1 8, 8 1. Acts 1 8, Jesus says, You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Acts 8 1 says, And at that time a great persecution arose at the church in Jerusalem. So if you keep Acts 1.8, you can expect Acts 8.1. Simply because the world suspects nonconformity. You don't conform to their values. And by the way, the Christian is the ultimate nonconformist. The ultimate nonconformist. And the world doesn't like it. It suspects it. They want a predictable pattern. Example. Jonas Hanway was a British guy who invented the umbrella. Now, we're grateful for it. We don't use it much around here. But in other parts of the world, like in England, it's an asset. But when Jonas Hanway first made the first umbrella and walked down the streets of London, they threw rocks at him. What is that weird guy doing carrying that weird thing? He's not getting wet. Well, let's beat him up. Well, there's a solution. Another example, Aristides, the philosopher from Athens, was called, nicknamed, Aristides the Just. Aristides the Just. He was banished from Athens. In asking people the predominant reason they voted to have him banished from Athens years ago, because they didn't like calling him the Just. That bothered them. What is this guy, the just? It showed them up. So in like manner, because the believer is chosen out of the world, the world's going to hate the believer. Now, in all of this, the indignation of the world, the explanation by the Savior, comes the third part, the best part, the consolation for the believer. In other words, when you're in an atmosphere of hatred, animosity, antipathy, people don't like you, whether at work or at school or at home, for you to keep going back to that, jumping back into that arena, there needs to be some payoff, some consolation, some incentive for you to keep going back into the world if the world hates you. And I found three that are in our text. Look at verse 18 once again. You're in good company. That's the first reason. That's the first consolation. That's the first incentive. You're in good company. If the world hates you, don't forget that second part. You know that it hated me before it hated you. You're in good company. Being persecuted for the sake of Christ proves that you belong to Christ. It shows your identity. Like master, like servant. Jesus used this rationale in the Sermon on the Mount in a different way. He said to them, Blessed are you when men revile you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, 
For great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You stand in the company of the representatives of God through history. Now, he says, you stand in my company as well. Now, granted, you may not get persecuted like your forefathers did. You may not get persecuted like people around this world are getting persecuted. In fact, in some cases, they may laugh at your bumper sticker or snicker at you behind your back. That's it. But you stand in the company of Moses, who was verbally aligned, of Elijah, who was chased by Jezebel and accused by Ahab, of Jeremiah, who was dropped into a slimy mud pit, and of Jesus himself, who was spat upon and mocked and died. So next time, if it happens that they make fun of you or laugh at your bumper sticker, you think back to this. You think, yes, yes, I rejoice. I'm exceedingly glad because I'm in good company. They did it to Jesus. I tell you, that's an incentive. Spurgeon put it this way, I'd much rather be the world's enemy and Christ's friend than the world's friend and Christ's enemy. You're in good company. The second consolation or incentive is that you have a good resource. Look at verse 25. Jesus says, But this happened, that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. Now he's quoting Psalm 69, and he applies it to them. Now there's an incentive for you. When and if you get persecuted for the sake of Christ and righteousness, it's somehow comforting to realize that this didn't take God by surprise at all. In fact, he anticipated it and predicted it. It's in the word it's like, oh yeah, he said this would happen. That's what the Bible says. It's true. It's come to pass. I have an assistant pastor here at the church. He's got a great plaque in his office. And it seems that I walk into his office at just the time I need to read it. Three words are on it. God never panics. God didn't go, oh, oops. Wow, ever. He never panics. Nothing ever surprises him. And it's comforting to know that, to be aware that God predicted it. Listen, in Acts chapter 4, this is precisely the consolation they got when they were being arrested and threatened and interrogated by the Jerusalem council. As soon as they were let go after the persecution, they went to their own chambers and they prayed, O oh Lord God, you who made heaven, earth, sea, and everything that is in it. Now listen. Who, by the mouth of David, your servant, said, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The nations have gathered against the Lord and against His Christ. In other words, they're saying, Lord, what you predicted in Psalm 2 happened to us today. It happened to us. We saw a partial fulfillment of Scripture. And we realize that you're providential. And this is why it helps for us to know the Bible, to know the Scripture, because we gain perspective. It's a good resource. Third and finally, look at verse 20. This is the other payoff, and I think the greatest of them all. That's why I've saved it for last. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. That word if, 
That word if is the great word of that verse. It shows us that some will hate you, will persecute you, won't want to listen to your message. Others will want to listen to your message, will accept it, and won't hate you. And that is the payoff. That's what keeps us going. That's what keeps us preaching. That's what keeps us teaching. Is that perhaps someone is going to say yes to Jesus Christ and listen to our words because they want to listen to His words. And that's why we keep sowing seed. Because we, lo- we long for, we live for the time it hits the soil and produces fruit. Oh, I know there's times where it goes bad, it goes by the wayside, the birds pick it up. But there are those times where it just produces fruit. That is the consolation. We have a good chance that some will listen. Jesus said something really troublesome to the disciples one day. He said, perhaps with a smile of confidence, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, if I'd have been there, I would have said, why do you hate us? You want us to get beat up and torn up and destroyed by the wolves? Why on earth would you say, behold, I send you out like sheep in the midst of wolves? For this reason, if perchance some of those wolves may listen to the message and become sheep. Not because Jesus is excited about you getting persecuted. Yeah, look at them. They're suffering. I love it. Never but that some of those wolves might turn to be sheep. So, go out, all of us. Let's turn on the light. Let's turn on the light. Even though the eyes of this world, as it says, have been blinded by the God of this world, even though they've grown accustomed to the dark, and you walk in the room and flip on the light switch, and some are going to yell at you and hate you for sharing the gospel. Turn on the light. Because they'll listen to you if they want to listen to Jesus. I close with an excellent little article written by none other than Max Lucada, who's a master at this stuff. Long ago, or maybe not so long ago, there was a tribe in a dark, cold cavern. The cave dwellers would huddle together and cry out against the chill. Loud and long, they wailed. It was all they did. It was all they knew how to do. The sounds in the cave were mournful, but the people didn't know it, for they had never known joy. The spirit in the cave was death, but the people didn't know it, for they had never known life. Then one day they heard a different voice. I have heard your cries, it announced. I have felt your chill, I have seen your darkness, and I have come to help. The cave people grew quiet. They had never heard this voice. Hope sounded so strange to their ears. How can we know that you've come to help? Trust me, he answered. I have what you need. The cave people peered through the darkness at the figure of the stranger. He was stacking something, then stooping, and then stacking more. What are you doing? One cried. The stranger didn't answer. What are you making? One shouted even louder. Still no response. Tell us, demanded a third. The visitor stood and spoke in the direction of the voices. I have what you need. With this, he turned to the pile at his feet and lit it. 
Wood ignited, flames erupted, and light filled the cavern. The cave people turned away in fear. Put it out, they cried. It hurts to see it. Well, light always hurts before it helps, he answered. Step closer. The pain will soon pass. Not I, declared a voice. Nor I, agreed a second. Only a fool would risk exposing his eyes to such light. The stranger stood next to the fire. Would you prefer the darkness? Would you prefer the cold? Don't consult your fears. Take a step of faith. For a long time, no one spoke. The people hovered in groups, covering their eyes. The fire builder stood next to the fire. It's warm here, he invited. He's right, one from behind him announced. It's warmer. The stranger turned and saw a figure slowly creeping toward the fire. I can open my eyes now, she proclaimed. I can see. We'll come closer, invited the fire builder. So she did. She stepped into the ring of light. It's so warm. She extended her hands and sighed as her chill began to pass. Come, everyone, feel the warmth, she invited. Silence, woman, cried one of the cave dwellers. Dare you lead us into your folly? Leave us, leave us and take your light with you. She turned to the stranger. Why won't they come? They choose the chill for it's cold. It's all they know. They'd rather be cold than change. And live in the dark, she asked. And live in the dark. The now warmed woman stood silent, looking first at the dark, then at the man. Will you leave the fire, he asked. She paused and then answered, I cannot, I, I cannot bear the cold. Then she spoke again, but nor can I bear the thought of my people in darkness. You don't have to, he responded, reaching into the fire and removing a stick. Here, carry this to your people. Tell them the light is here and that the light is warm. Tell them the light is for all who desire it. And so she took the small flame and stepped into the shadows. That's our task. And our task is to take the light we get here and to go out there. That's why Jesus said, Go ye into all the world. He didn't say, Come ye to the ring of fire. We're going to build a fire and you tell people to come. No, He said, You go. Take the light with you. Let's pray for that. Lord, Thank you for the bare honesty of our Savior who told us the world will hate us, the world will persecute us, and then told us why. It's as we relate to you, it's because we're not of the world any longer. We've been chosen to a different system, a different way of looking at life altogether. But there is a payoff, Lord, a great payoff. When we're persecuted, we stand in your company as we bear your light to the world. It's a wonderful company to be in, Lord. And Lord, there is a chance, there is a possibility that some are going to listen, are going to be attracted by the light that is in our lives. And we're so honored when you use us that way. But Lord, we also can't help but wonder if some didn't come tonight into this ring of fire or close to it who really don't know you yet. We're glad they came, Lord. We're glad they're here. 
were glad they noticed the warmth and the life because of the fire of grace. And we pray, Lord, right here in this place tonight, rather than clinging to the cold, rather than embracing the darkness, that some would take that small but wonderful step of salvation into warmth and into light. That's what we're praying for, Lord. That's what makes everything worth it. Everything worth it.